It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, finance editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Money Talks. On this show, traditional car makers seem likely to stick together in the face of technological disruption tech rivals are putting pressure on car makers to provide mobility, to provide autonomous driving and to provide connected cars. They need to spread the cost of those new technologies over as many vehicles as they possibly can. Also, we'll have a report from the Royal Economic Society's annual conference about the current economic consensus over the impact of Brexit. We are going to see GDP decline over the next 5 to 15 years and that decline could be as substantial as £700 per year per household, up to somewhere in the order of eight times that number. And we'll hear why the gold price has weathered recent geopolitical shocks. If you think the world is going to hell, then gold's the asset for you. If you think we're going to muddle through as usual, then it's not really that exciting. First, though, traditional car makers are under increasing threat as deep-pocketed tech giants continue to work their way into the transport industry. The proliferation of ride-sharing technology and the advent of self-driving vehicles are compounding worries amongst traditional car makers. So could joining forces be the next step? Simon Wright, our car industry correspondent, joins me now to discuss. Simon, we've already seen recently this, this one deal where GM sold its European operations, Opel, to PSA of, of France. Does that herald a, a new wave of consolidation in the industry? It's certainly been a talking point amongst people who follow the industry. I mean, in one sense, it's consolidation, but in another sense, it's deconsolidation because General Motors has got slightly smaller by selling Opel. There's a feeling in the industry that the scale you need in the mass market is getting bigger and bigger. A few years ago, it was 6 million uh, annual production. Now it's up to 10 million. GM, Toyota, Volkswagen... And with the acquisition of a controlling interest in Mitsubishi, the Renault-Nissan alliance are all around about the 10 million mark. Except GM will be taking a step back, but of course PSA will be getting slightly larger. And the reason car makers need to get larger is that they have some big investments up ahead. As you talked about, the tech uh, rivals are putting pressure on car makers to provide mobility, to provide autonomous driving and to provide connected cars they need to spread the cost of those new technologies over as many vehicles as they possibly can. Historically, though, the record of car giant mergers is not a good one, right? I mean, there's been a lot of car wrecks along the way. There certainly have. The theory is that, you know, the bigger the better. Scale matters, particularly in the mass market. But car makers are reluctant to do so. There are a number of reasons, and one of them is the past history of car mergers. Daimler Chrysler was, as you say, a car crash. BMW's dalliance with the MG Rover Group in the UK. They got Mini out of it, but, I mean, not much else. And all down the line, Ford and its premier automotive group, all car mergers seem to have ended in failure, except uh, a couple of notable exceptions. One is uh, Fiat and Chrysler. The jury may still be out on how well that's going to do in the long run. 
But because they've operated in completely separate markets, that's, that seems to have worked quite well for them. And also the boss of Fiat Chrysler has made sure that the, the culture of the two firms, which is very important when you're in a car merger, that they haven't clashed. The other one is Renault-Nissan, and they've succeeded because they've done things very, very slowly. It's been years and years before they started to sort of share parts, components and platforms seriously. Although the merger has been a success, they haven't really sort of reaped the rewards. Looking at the situation now, which of the remaining giants are being speculated about? What tie-ups are, are being talked of? Well, if you want to play fantasy mega-mergers, there are plenty of analysts out there who will who, do so. The talk has always been Fiat Chrysler again. Sergio Marchionne, the boss of Fiat Chrysler, is a great advocate of car industry mergers. He sees a lot of duplicated investment in the car industry. For example, how many one-litre, three-cylinder petrol engines do you need? There's half a dozen out there. All the car makers, you know, could could use one and sort of tune it to their tastes. So he he thinks that there should be many mergers, and he thinks that his company is the one that he's been sort of touting around for a while. He tried with General Motors, but has been rebuffed many, many times. Now there's talk of Volkswagen perhaps being interested, though Volkswagen have their own problems with Dieselgate. But Volkswagen, in a way, is an example of a successful merger in that Volkswagen has many, many different brands which is picked up over the years and they all seem to have integrated fairly successfully. And we talked right at the beginning about the threat from the tech companies. Uh, are some of them likely to, to join the industry? Are some of them going to be shopping for car companies or are they rivals from outside entirely? It's difficult to say. We've seen Tesla, which is a car company that sort of emerged in the space of a d- little more than a decade to producing only produces sort of 100,000 cars a year, but that's a pretty remarkable thing to do to break into the car industry. You don't you don't see that happening very often. And if you do see it, it takes an awfully long time. But Tesla have bucked the trend. Apple were rumoured to be uh, thinking about making a car, and now the rumours say that they've given up because they just found it too complicated. The big question with the car industry is where it's going to go and what's going to be important. It's probably not going to be the mechanics of the car anymore. It's going to be the data that the the car produces. And what we have at the moment is we have a car industry that can collect an awful lot of data. It's the kind of data that's valuable in itself, but it's also the kind of data you need to create self-driving cars. They have this data. The tech giants don't have any data. What they're trying to do is provide technologies that the car makers want which they can use as leverage to get some of that data out of them. So we have a car industry that has all the data and doesn't know what to do with it, and a tech industry that wants the data and can't get its hands on it. Simon Wright, thank you very much for joining us. So, listeners, what do you think about the way the future industry might shape up? Do you think the traditional car makers have what it takes to survive? Do let us know your thoughts. You can tweet us at Economist Radio or email us at radioeconomist.com. Next. In the run-up to the Brexit referendum last year, much of the debate revolved around the likely economic fallout of Britons leaving the EU. Brexiteers have since gleefully accused the economics profession of being too gloomy and plain wrong. But is that how British economists themselves see it? Our economics correspondent, Sumeya Keynes, has been at the Royal Economic Society's annual conference, where she discussed this with Swati Dingra of the London School of Economics. I was here a year ago with Swati Dingra, and she was talking about her research on the impact of Brexit. Swati, what was your view then? Our view then was that leaving the European Union would impact negatively on the British economy, and we haven't changed that view, even though a lot of economists are being sort of vilified by the media, but largely our long-term forecasts are exactly what they were, which is that 
compared to a situation where we wouldn't have Brexited, we are going to see GDP decline over the next 5 to 15 years, and that decline could be as substantial as £700 per year per household, up to somewhere in the order of eight times that number. What was this research based on? How could you be so sure? So unlike a lot of other fields of economics, in trade at least, we have really high quality data from years and years, in fact going back even to the Chinese opium wars. So what we know is that large countries trade more with each other, big countries, rich countries, and countries that are close to each other. That's the European Union for us. It's our biggest trade partner. So if we do start seeing trade barriers come up, and these are not just about tariffs, these are about regulatory divergences across the two areas, the continental Europe and the United Kingdom. If we do diverge, we would see it become more difficult for businesses to ship across borders, and that would end up reducing living standards through lower trade and investment. It's quite unusual to have such consensus between economists. I think the reason there was consensus was because the data behind it was very strong and very clear in one direction. We know from a lot of historical experiences as well as from sort of more forward-looking analysis that we would expect the European Union and the UK to trade less with each other if there are trade barriers, if there is regulatory divergence. And this is not something extraordinary. This is something which we would expect because we know from those hundreds of years of data that this is what happens when you see trade barriers come up. There's less trade and investment. So one year later, clearly Britain's voted to leave the European Union. Do you think economists did anything wrong in terms of how they communicated their message? I think there's very little we could have done differently. The issue was not that we somehow didn't manage to communicate well, that we were being too technical or that people were getting lost in the details. It was really a matter of the BBC in particular saying, here are a bunch of economists that think in one way, and from the other end, we're going to get one of those 4% of economists who disagree. The message came out was that somehow we're having some kind of academic disagreement. While that was not what was going on, 96% of economists thought that, in fact, Britain would be negatively impacted if we left the European Union. And that sort of balance was essentially a false balance. It was an absolutely non-objective way of representing the facts that we did know. What are the next questions that academic economists like yourself who are thinking about trade, what are the big questions that you're thinking about answering now? I think a lot of us are concerned about what distributional consequences this vote might have. So at least in my research, what I'm going to be thinking about next is how Brexit might impact different areas in the United Kingdom. And what we expect might happen would be that Places like Sunderland, which have a huge car industry, which have benefited immensely from the single market because a lot of their exports go to the European Union. How are these communities going to be impacted? They've already suffered due to the austerity cuts, and now they might actually suffer even more. And it's really, it's extremely sad that these might be the areas which voted overwhelmingly for Brexit and now end up suffering some of those really negative consequences as well. What do you think your role as an academic economist is now, now that Britons are voted to leave the EU and policymakers are you know, looking to the future? I think many of the same false balance issues that came up in the run-up to the referendum are coming up again, much more at the policymaking level now. So the Parliamentary Select Committee on International Trade in November when it interviewed people, it called two academic economists and it called one person from economists for Brexit, one person from lawyers for Brexit. The committee was about understanding how 
leaving the European Union would impact the British economy and what future stance they should be taking in terms of future trade deals. It's really unfortunate that the same false balance, the same sort of specious arguments are being given now at the policymaking levels as well. Swati Dingra there, talking to Samir Keynes. Finally, gold is often considered a safe haven for investors in times of global uncertainty. Bullion prices tend to rise when the political outlook is gloomy or if fears of rising inflation abound, so it's usually a pretty good bellwether of risk. But in recent months, as tensions and political uncertainty have mounted around the world, the gold price has been surprisingly stable. Joining me to talk about this is Philip Coggan, our Buttonwood columnist. Philip, what exactly has been happening to the gold price? Well, in the immediate aftermath of the November election when Donald Trump was elected, gold fell. It's picked up a bit this year, but it's still well below its levels of last summer, even with the tensions in Syria, North Korea, and of course the general sense that Donald Trump was responsible for a reflation trade which would see uh, inflation higher and global growth pick up, both the things which you might think would benefit gold. But I think that the two things that have been holding investors back is that gold is often seen as an alternative to the dollar. It tends to do well when the dollar does badly and vice versa. But the dollar has picked up since Mr. Trump's election because investors expect the Federal Reserve to increase interest rates and that has strengthened demand for the currency. Higher interest rates are also generally bad for gold. You get nothing for holding gold. So it benefits when interest rates are low. There's no real cost for holding it. And it tends to suffer when interest rates go up. But as you say, we are expecting interest rates to keep rising. We've already seen the Fed start to raise interest rates last year or again this year. Does that mean we should expect to see gold price pick up now? Not necessarily. I think it's a hedge against the worst. So uh, higher interest rates would usually lower demand for gold. It depends on how investors get behind the metal. So the big run-up, which was from 2001 to 2011, which was you know, gold was up to virtually $1,900 an ounce from about 250 to 60 in the early years of the millennium, was a momentum trade. Once gold started to rise, those kind of hedge funds and people who like to buy the things that have recently gone up jumped on the bandwagon. In 2013, when we had... The euro crisis seemed to calm down when we were more worried about deflation than inflation. Gold started to fall and it's never really picked up again. But you could imagine a situation in which tensions with North Korea go up, tensions with the US and Russia ratchet even further. We have more bombings, more red lines are crossed and gold could go a lot higher. And of course, if central banks lose control of inflation. It's picked up a little so far. Nobody's expecting the kind of levels we saw in the 1970s, which was another great era for gold. Then if central banks seem to lose control of it, then gold could do well. But the essence of it is it's a very gloomy sort of trade. If you meet gold bugs, they tend to have a, a rather depressed view of the world and think that all is going to hell. So if you think the world is going to hell, then gold's the asset for you. If you think we're going to muddle through as usual, then it's not really that exciting. You mentioned that We've been talking about it purely in dollar terms. I mean, how has it been doing against other currencies? Well, the great thing about it is it is a fairly steady measure of value. And as I say, relative to the dollar, it's a, it's a hedge. In sterling, it's up 18% since June the 23rd when the referendum was held and sterling started to fall. So you'll probably feel fairly prosperous if you bought gold as a, a UK-based investor back then. But of course, you can't rely on that to continue. Gold 
has some great runs in history, but it also has some long periods. So between 1980 and 2001, it lost 80% in real terms, never mind nominal terms. So it wasn't a hedge against inflation for that period. So this is not the kind of all-weather asset that you might want to rely on. It really is, if things are going badly, it's the thing you want to hold. So as a cheerful chap, Philip, you are not a gold investor. (laughs) I'm called gloomy often, but I'm not quite that gloomy. Philip Coggan, Buttonwood columnist, thank you very much. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read any of the articles discussed this week, pick up the forthcoming issue of the newspaper or visit our website at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.